accepted at the same time the calling to be a disciple of Jesus. Mark Dever writes in his book, Discipling, quote, to be a Christian is to be a disciple. There are no Christians who are not disciples, and to be a disciple of Jesus means to follow Jesus. There are no disciples who are not following Jesus, end quote. That is our calling as Christians, to be disciples who follow Jesus. That would mean then, I would assume most of us in this room are Christians, then we are also disciples. So how well are you following Jesus? How well are you following Jesus? I believe that the greatest challenge that Christians face today is walking in faithful discipleship. It's a struggle we certainly constantly, consistently wrestle with. We may be feeling, I know I've been feeling just the weight of that burden even more in, in these days. How does a Christian respond to social injustice? How do we faithfully live in the midst of civil unrest? How do we imitate Jesus in the face of a global pandemic? Those are just some recent questions that I have asked myself and wrestled with myself personally. But there are bigger questions, right? Those are the big questions of this time, but there are more questions that we could ask ourselves. Walking out our calling to discipleship faithfully day by day, moment by moment, for the rest of our lives almost feels impossible. It feels like such a weight, such a burden. It feels like I can never really measure up to what Jesus wants me to be and to do as a disciple. In his kind providence, Jesus has graciously provided instruction for us through his word on how we should live as disciples. And he also gave us the Holy Spirit to understand that instruction and empower us to live it out. And so as we read from Luke's gospel, we read more about discipleship. In fact, one of Luke's main concerns in his gospel is Christian discipleship. How the disciples of Jesus, all of them, ancient and modern, how we are to walk out our discipleship. We're about ready to enter into probably the preeminent teaching of Jesus on Christian discipleship in the Gospel of Luke. It's called sometimes the Sermon on the Plain, verses 20 through 49 of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at this passage over the next few weeks to see what it says about Christian discipleship. Before we actually get there, we need to walk across the bridge that Luke constructs for us from the beginning of chapter 6, we saw a couple of weeks ago on Jesus and the opposition he faced from the Pharisees on works that were done on the Sabbath day to this moment where Jesus teaches his disciples about discipleship. So we're going to begin in verse 12, Luke chapter 6, verse 12, and we're going to read through verse 26. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. 
and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them. And he lifted up his eyes and his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This passage that we've just read, and if you have the ESV version, I think you'll notice that the editors have broken it up into three sections. Those are the three natural sections of the passage. And we see in verses 12 through 16, the selection of Jesus' apostles. We see in verses 17 through 19, a summary of Jesus' ministry. And then in verses 20 to 26, we see the opening statement of the Sermon on the Plain, where Jesus provides warning, uh, promises and warnings for his disciples. So I just want to walk through those uh, sections, the first two rather quickly, and then we'll spend most of our time on that last chunk there, verses 20 to 26. So first, the selection of the apostles. As Jesus was ministering in Galilee, we know that there were a considerable number of people who responded positively to the call of Jesus, where they responded positively to his teaching and preaching to the call of the gospel. And many of them left their communities, they left their vocations, they left everything behind and began to follow after Jesus. And so Jesus begins to accumulate around himself a rather sizable number, number of disciples, as a matter of fact. We don't know how many. We know that at one point that when Jesus challenged them, many of his disciples left him. We know that on the day of Pentecost, just prior to Pentecost, between the ascension of Pentecost, there were at least 120 people in Jerusalem. There were probably more scattered throughout that region. So there was a very sizable number of Jesus' disciples. But from this larger group, Jesus calls 12 men to be his apostles. Uh, we see that in verse 13. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named Apostles. The word apostle comes from a Greek verb which means to send or to send out. So an apostle in a generic sense is one who is sent. He's one who is sent by another, someone of greater power, greater authority. For Consider the political context of this time. That this would be someone who, who is sent out by a political superior. So let's take, for example, the Roman emperor. If the Roman emperor wanted to convey a message to another part of his empire. It's too difficult for him to get there, too costly, too time-consuming. He would send out a messenger. He would send out an apostle to go and to carry that message to them. And when the messenger or the representative, the officially sanctioned, commissioned representative arrived, he would speak the emperor's message. His words were not his own. His words were from the emperor. He spoke the emperor's words. He communicated a message from the emperor himself. He did not carry his own authority. He carried the authority of the emperor. These were words to receive and words to believe and words to act upon. So an apostle is simply here in a generic sense, an intermediary, an official representative. Jesus is calling these 12 men from the larger group of disciples that he has to be his official representatives. And we'll see as we continue to move through the gospel of Luke that there are times where Jesus sends these 12 out to do earthly ministry. 
That they're going to go out with the message of Jesus and act in Jesus' name and do all kinds of, of works in Jesus' name. And they carry with them Jesus' authority. They are out doing his business. They're not carrying out their own agenda. They're serving the agenda of their master. They will speak and they will act with Jesus' authority. They will speak his very words. They will speak his gospel. And of course, when Jesus departs from this world, they will continue to carry out his mission as his authorized representative. So the apostles become the first leaders of the church. Their ministry will lay the foundation for the church and the generations to come through their teachings, through their writings that are preserved for us in the New Testament, through their leadership, through their missionary efforts going throughout the Roman Empire, throughout the known world, proclaiming the gospel. These are the ones that Jesus has chosen to officially represent him and carry on his work. We see that Jesus calls 12 12 disciples to be his apostles. And again, he doesn't call here for volunteers. He doesn't say, I'm looking for 12 to come and, and be my, my apostles, my official representatives. He, it says, chooses them. Look at verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and he chose them, chose, them, chose from them 12 whom he, named, whom he named apostles. So Jesus isn't calling for volunteers. He is purposely choosing these men for this office to serve him in this way. And Luke records the list of names there of those 12. We see the first one, the headliner of the group, is Simon Peter. He is the one who will become the chief of the apostles. We had already read about his calling in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We know he was a fisherman by trade. But when he had an encounter with Jesus, Jesus called him to leave his nets and to come follow him as a disciple. And so he did. He's listed first here because he's the preeminent apostle. He's often the spokesman for the disciples, for the apostles. Of course, he becomes the first leader of the church after Jesus' ascension. He is joined by his brother Andrew and his business partners, James and John. See them in four, verse 14. In verse 14 as well, the last name there, Bartholomew, or in the Aramaic, his name would be Bar Tolmai, or which translates as the son of Tolmai. That's the family name for a man named Nathaniel that's represented in John chapter 1. So we have, a, we have some instances here where, where the disciples go, or apostles go by two different names. Bartholomew is the name for Nathaniel who appears in John chapter 1. I commend you to read more about him there. Uh, the name Matthew in verse 15 is the name, another name for Levi, the tax collector, again, whom we read about in chapter 5. Verses 27 through 32, he's the tax collector whom Jesus called from his tax booth and said, come follow me. And, and he was the one who, who set up a, a party, if you will. He, he hosted a banquet in Jesus' honor and invited all of his sinful friends, his fellow tax collectors, to come and to hear more about Jesus, introducing them to Jesus. In verse 15, we read about a man named Simon who was called a zealot. He belonged to a radical political group called the Zealots. There. Their main platform, if you will, their main purpose was to oppose the Roman Empire. They wanted to uh, cast off the burden of Roman oppression. They wanted to, to see Rome as occupiers leave, forcibly be removed. And in its place, they wanted to establish the line of David. They wanted to establish self-rule, a nationalistic government, where the, the descendant of David, the son of David, would rule over God's people as God intended them. And so it became a very violent group. We don't know about si the level of Simon's participation. If he himself was violent, very could have, it very well could have been. But he was part of this group. And let me just kind of put a pause button there for a minute. I find it very interesting that Jesus called at least two men 
of diametrically opposed political persuasions. He calls a tax collector loyal to Rome, fiercely supportive of Rome, the Roman state, Roman rule, and he calls a Jewish nationalist fiercely opposed to Rome. I, I thought of a couple of analogies. If you can, I, I don't know if the Tea Party Republicans are still a thing, but you might remember them a few years ago, right? Very conservative, ultra-conservative. You imagine some, a, a member of the tea, a tea Party Republican and a socialistic Democrat, Jesus calling a person from each of those to be his disciples. Someone like a Ted Cruz and a Bernie Sanders. Can you imagine that? Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders being a disciple of Jesus. Now, of course, they would be transformed because of what Jesus has done, has done to them through the gospel, but could you imagine that? Maybe even to make a more relevant association to our cultural situation today with racial tensions being so high, imagine Jesus calling to himself as a disciple a member of the KKK and a member of the Black Panthers. Imagine Jesus calling Nathan Bedford Forrest, the founder of the KKK, and also at the same time calling Malcolm X to be his disciples. Can you imagine that? We probably can't, right? Partly it is because we think of them in non-Christian ways as we probably should. I don't know they ever made professions of faith for Jesus Christ. We're actually disciples of Jesus Christ. But this is the power of the gospel, is it not? That Jesus can change the heart of radically disparate political opponents? That he can change the heart of a white supremacist and a black panther? That's the power of the gospel. Je this is what Jesus does. Jesus specializes this. Jesus reconciles people as only he can. So when we're living in a day where we would hope for and long for racial reconciliation, what is the answer? Ultimately, the answer is Christ. Ultimately, the answer is the power of the gospel, which is why the church must continue to preach the gospel in this age. We must continue to point people to Jesus. Everything else may be helpful, but ultimately it's a band-aid. We need the gospel. People need the gospel. And only Jesus can do it. So great is the power of the gospel. The, the gospel is the power of God into salvation, Paul tells us in Romans 1.16. And that seems to be a message that we need to hear. Okay, put the pause, turn the pause button off. Also listed in the disciples here in verse 16 is Judas Iscariot. Jesus called Judas Iscariot to be a disciple. And of course, Judas will betray Jesus. We know that. He will turn him over to be crucified. We even see that Luke foreshadows that at the end of verse 16. Judas became a traitor. So Luke is foreshadowing for us what's going to happen to Jesus. But it's interesting to me here that Jesus chose Judas to be an apostle. Not just a disciple, but an apostle. Again, Judas didn't volunteer. Jesus chose him, right? That's the word that that Luke uses in verse 13, that Jesus chose these men. And Jesus didn't choose Judas out of ignorance. He didn't choose him randomly or accidentally. But he chose him deliberately because this was the will of the Father. Remember that in verse 12, what had Jesus done before he chose the apostles? We could do a whole sermon on verse 12 and the importance of prayer, how Jesus submitted himself to prayer. It's another one of the main themes of the Gospel of Luke. Je Jesus felt. Jesus knew that this was a critical decision to make, and so he spent the entire night in prayer. He prayed all night to God. Why? To seek the divine mind, to understand the Father's will, to submit his own plans and his own purposes to the will and the purpose of the Father, to access God's mind, the Father's mind, so that he might 
properly choose the 12 that God wanted him to have as apostles. So Jesus' choosing of Judas purposely reflects his understanding of his mission. He understood that he must be betrayed, that he must lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice to redeem his people and bring them into his kingdom that he was establishing. So Jesus takes these newly selected apostles in verses 12 through 16, and in verse 17, he comes down from the mountain. And there with these 12 apostles, he is joined by a larger group. We see in verse 17 that Luke calls them a, a great crowd of his disciples. So we're expanding the, uh, the, the, the number here, right? We've got 12 apostles, now a large group of disciples. And even more beyond just that crowd of disciples, we have also many others whom Luke calls a great multitude of people from all over the region who are gathering around Jesus. And they come as far north as Tyre and Sidon, about 35 to 45 miles to the north. Again, that might not seem like a big deal to us today, but in a day and time where there's no, you know, there are no cars, no airplanes, there's no motorized vehicles, it would have been quite a, a haul to come from Tyre and Sidon. They also come from as, as far south as Jerusalem, probably about 90 miles away. The reputation of Jesus has, has spread as he, as he continues to minister the good news, as he teaches the gospel, as he's healing people. The reports about Jesus, again, just keep spreading like wildfire. Luke gives us these, these summary narratives to tell us just how far and how wide the message about Jesus is spreading. And so as more and more people hear about Jesus, more and more people come to him for help. Many, we read in verses 18 and 19, came to Jesus for healing. They wanted healing of their, of their diseases, of their disabilities, of, of being possessed by demons. They recognized his divine power. Maybe they had witnessed it personally. They had heard of the, the testimony of friends or relatives or others in their community of the power of Jesus, how he had changed somebody's life. And so for someone who was afflicted in this day and time, Jesus is their only hope. The only place to find remedy, the only place to find relief, the only place to find wholeness is to come to Jesus. And so they come flocking to him. They come hoping that he will be merciful to them and that he will heal them. And of course, Jesus does that. Jesus is merciful. Jesus heals them because that's what he came to do. He came to do a spiritual work. He came to heal and to restore. He came to do a work of wholeness and restoration and redemption, the whole person, body, mind, soul, spirit. And so Jesus heals all these people. Of course, we've seen over and over again that this healing ministry is a picture. It's an illustration of the spiritual work he came to do. Jesus came to break the power and curse of sin. We see that represented in so many diseases and so many disabilities and even demon possession. We see the power and curse of sin and how it affects people didn't just affect the outward man, it affected the inward man as well. Jesus came to heal sinful people. He came to heal broken and distressed people. He came to save them from the earthly blight that tormented them. He came to restore them to a relationship with God and bring them into his kingdom. But notice also that people came to hear Jesus. And I find it interesting that Luke mentions that first in verse 18. In verse 17, all these people come to Jesus. In verse 18, who came to hear him. That's Luke's way of emphasizing that moment, that, that response. 
Jesus came, we know, of course, to proclaim good news. Jesus was declaring the arrival of God's kingdom in accordance with the promises of God's redemption through the prophets in the Old Testament. People needed to hear that good news. They needed to know how they could enter God's kingdom and find salvation. And so for his disciples, Jesus takes that a step further. Not only do they know how, need to know how to enter into the kingdom, they need to also know how to live in accordance with the kingdom, how they could live faithfully as disciples in his kingdom. So as the apostles and the disciples and the multitudes gather together on the plain, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach them. You see that teaching in verses 20 to 49. Again, we call that the Sermon on the Plain. You're probably more familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Luke's Sermon, and the reason why it's called the Sermon on the Plains back in verse 17, it says that Jesus stood on a level place. Okay, it's supposed, it could have been up in the mountains on a plateau, but at least on a level place. We don't know exactly the relationship between the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, but a lot of the detail, a lot of the content is, is overlapping. There's a lot, of, a lot of similarity between the two. As you read this, you'll maybe be hearkened back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. This sermon is considerably shorter. We see that there are four parts to it. Just going to outline those real quickly. Verses 20 through 26, we see this series of beatitudes and woes. We're going to look about in just a moment. Verses 27 to 36 is a teaching on loving one's enemies. Seems also pretty relevant for our time. In verses 37 to 42, there's another teaching on not judging others. Another relevant message. And then in verses 43 to 49, we have an exhortation for those who hear to heed Christ's teaching. So we'll tackle those over the next several weeks. We want to look at the first section, verses 20 to 26, these promises and warnings. Again, I want to make a couple of observations just generally about the passage before we kind of dive into the verses. As you look at verses 20 to 26, we see that this Sermon on the Plain opens with a series of four beatitudes or blessings, followed by a parallel series of four woes or curses. And those woes are meant to be a contrast to the blessing. So, for example, if you look at verse 20, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor. Right? The blessing for those who are poor. Then in verse 24, we see the antithesis. Woe to you who are rich. And we see the parallel. Verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry. Verse 21, woe to you who are full. Again, back in verse 21, blessed are you who weep. Verse 25, woe to you who laugh. And then in verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, revile you, and spurn your name. And then verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you. So the first woe parallels the first blessing, second, and so forth. And you get the idea there, I think. Those woes are meant to be a contrast to the Beatitudes. So Jesus is first announcing these blessings, and then he goes through and announces these woes. Secondly, the, the word bless there, going back to the Hebrew mindset, it, it means it in Greek, but it also going back to the Hebrew mindset, the Hebrew worldview that, from which Jesus is teaching, literally means happy. And it refers to an inner or deep-seated joy, a joy that remains, a joy that is abiding, a joy that is not dependent upon circumstances or on, on, on temporal situations. This isn't something that comes and goes. This is something that is abiding. It doesn't shift with life situations. It's a constant and abiding blessedness because it comes from God. 
We receive this blessing. We receive joy from God as he is blessing his people. And the Old Testament shows us that it is God's nature. It's God's character to bless. In fact, it is his default disposition to his people. And we can look at this in several different ways. See a few examples. First, we see that creation, right? God created human beings and he blessed them with abundant blessing. He was purposeful to bless. He blessed them on purpose. It was the very first act he, he did after creation. And it was his very first pronouncement to them. So in Genesis 1.27, we read the, the statement of God creating human beings. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then what? And God blessed them. God created them. God blessed them. And then it goes on to express how he would bless them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have food for them. God created man. He created man to have a relationship with him. He then is going to bless man. We also see this in, in the calling of Abraham. When God called Abraham to initiate his purpose of redeeming the nations of the world, he not only blessed Abraham, but he announced that he would bless all the nations of the earth through him. Like Psalm 67, the prayer of Psalm 67 is a prayer for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Again, we see God's intention there ultimately to bless his people. We also see it in Israel. When God called Israel to himself... He blessed them as his covenant people. He promised his blessing to them as his covenant people. Every time they gathered for worship, the priests would announce God's blessing to them. We oftentimes hear it at the end of a service here. The benediction that we give. It's the benediction that God gave to Aaron. Numbers chapter 6, verse 23. Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. God's intention is to bless his people. That blessing would be, again, an abiding blessing. It's an inner, deep-seated joy that his people are to experience. And that joy is rooted in a satisfaction with God and with all his good and gracious gifts that he bestows upon us. By contrast... The word woe is an exclamation of pain or pity for the misfortune that awaits someone. It announces that extreme disaster and trouble is near. It is coming. The Old Testament connects this idea of woe with God's judgment upon the sinner. The sinner who offends and opposes God by his sin has incited God's wrath. He's provoked God's judgment. So when Isaiah is in the temple, right, and he sees the heavenly vision of God... He hears the, this, the, the angels proclaiming and declaring, singing the thrice holy God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What is Isaiah's response? Woe is me. 
I'm not blessed by being in the presence of a holy God. I am cursed. Woe is me. Trouble is coming for me. Why? For I am lost. Why am I lost? For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 23, the Lord speaking to his people says, after all your wickedness, he doesn't even finish the sentence. It goes into sort of this parenthetical statement. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord. What is he saying there? Trouble, judgment is coming upon my people. Why? Because you are a wicked people. Your sin has brought the curse upon you. Hosea 7.13, woe to them for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Again, trouble is coming. Woe. People of God are cursed because of their sin. They've strayed from God. They have rebelled against him. And therefore they are cursed. So woes announce God's soon coming judgment in return for sinfulness and rebellion against him. So that the woe there is the antithesis. It's the contrast to the blessed of verses 20 to 23. So for the disciples of Jesus, the Beatitudes are promises. They're promises of God's blessings to us through the gospel. It's what we receive because of our faith and trust in him. By repenting of our sins and by believing in Jesus, we have already entered the kingdom of God. We don't enter the kingdom of God by being poor, hungry, weeping, and so forth. We come into the kingdom of God by the gospel. How do we live once we are, have trusted in the gospel? We continue to live in that way. We continue to walk with Jesus and receive these blessings as his inheritance. His blessing is his gift. It's his favor to us. We begin to experience these blessings now. Why? Because the kingdom of God has come. We are living in the kingdom of God. But we also know that we will experience these blessings in full bloom in their greatest reality in eternity. The blessings that we receive now from God are first fruits. They're a foretaste of blessings that are still future coming. So when we read of these promises, they are things, promises to be believed. They are promises to cling to. They are promises to hope in. At the same time, these woes are warnings to the disciples of Jesus. Let me again just draw your attention to the fact in verse 20 that when Jesus is teaching, his, his primary audience is, are, is his disciples. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Now, we know that there were other people that were there, the crowds and multitudes, but Jesus sees this teaching as being specifically for his disciples. And so the woes are a warning, and they're a warning to us. They challenge us to look deep into our hearts. They challenge us and test us to see whether we are truly following Jesus. They warn us of deviating from the gospel. They reveal the danger of walking out of step with the character of the kingdom. So what are these promises and warnings? Let's look at these one by one. We'll start with the first promise in verse 20, the first blessing. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, we need to kind of go back to the Old Testament mindset worldview for this, because the poor here are not just simply the materially poor, but they are the poor who were pious. They were poor who were trusting in God. They were, they were the faithful poor, the pious poor. Yes, they were materially poor, but they were not blessed in God's sight just because they were poor. But their material poverty 
caused them to depend upon God. They put their hope in God as their source, as the one who could provide all that they needed. Their lives were sustained, not by the bread that they could accumulate, but by God himself who provided for all of their needs. So God alone is their source and strength. He is their, he is their sustainer and provider. In Matthew 5.3, again, the parallel to this, Jesus calls these poor the poor in spirit, right? Kind of giving us, fleshing out the, the, the spiritual aspect of this, a spiritual poverty that is behind his words here. He is calling those who are spiritually poor to come to him, to trust in him. Now, poverty is ultimately a result of sin. It's part of the, the curse of sin. Again, we said that creation, that God, when God created human beings, he created them to bless them. It was his intention to bless them. It seemed like he created them for the very purpose of blessing them. But by sinning, what have human beings done? We've cut ourselves off from God. Uh, by cutting ourselves off from God, we've cut ourselves off from the blessing of God, from the very source of our blessing. It's not that God's blessing became absent, but God, created the, God cursed the created order. And from that curse, from that rupture of that relationship between God and man, we experience lack and deprivation and poverty. And that external poverty, just like the diseases and just like the disabilities and the demon possession, the external poverty exposes an internal poverty. Why are we in this situation? It's because we are spiritually poor. We're spiritually impoverished people. When Jesus announced the gospel, he announced the way of reconciliation to God. And it's through a restored relationship with God then that we experience God's blessing once again. So our poverty is the result of a rupture in that relationship. But Jesus, the great reconciler, restores us to God. And in doing so, he restores the blessing that God desires to give to his people. As disciples of Jesus, we recognize our spiritual poverty. In fact, we can't become a disciple unless we recognize that we are spiritually poor. And apart from God, that is true, right? Apart from God, we are spiritually poor. We are spiritually deprived. And so we recognize, when we hear the call of the gospel, we recognize that our lives are utterly dependent upon God. By trusting in the gospel, we admit that not only are we spiritually poor, but we are putting our hope in him. We are depending upon God for life itself. That all that we need comes from God, that he is our source, he is our strength, he is our provider. So the promise for Jesus' disciples who acknowledge their spiritual poverty is that the kingdom of God belongs to them. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to us. We enter the kingdom of God by the gospel, and we gain the kingdom as an inheritance. John so greatly read that passage from 1 Peter for us. We have a great inheritance in Christ because of what he has done for us through his death and resurrection. And, that, and part of the inheritance then is life in the kingdom. All that characterizes the kingdom belongs to us. We live under the gracious and benevolent rule of Christ, who is our source, who is our strength, who sustains us, and who provides all that we need. But again, there is a warning. In verse 24, Woe to you who are rich! For you have received your consolation. We know that contrast between rich and poor. The rich are the opposite of the poor. The rich here is, again, an illustration, a representation of those who have no needs. Those who are materially wealthy. Why is it more difficult for the wealthy to come to Christ? Because they don't need, they don't need Christ. They don't think they need Christ. 
They have what they need. They're self-sufficient. They are self-dependent. They have no need for God because they can rely upon themselves. The warning here for the disciples of Jesus is that we lose our sense of dependency upon God. I think that's a challenge for us as 21st century American Christians, right? We are, for the most part, again, comparatively speaking, we're wealthy. Most all of us have all of our needs met. We don't have to worry where our next meal is coming from. We don't have to worry about shelter. We don't have to worry about the basics of life. We have much more beyond what we need to live. And since our material poverty reminds us of our spiritual poverty, it reminds us of our need for God. It reminds us of our utter dependence upon God. And I was convicted of that this week. I'm thinking through my own life. You know, I think I trusted God more 25 years ago when I didn't have as much. When we were struggling week to week to make it, we prayed a lot more. I, mean, I hate to say it. I'm just, you know, confessing here. We trusted God a lot more. We're just depending upon him. I mean, God, I've shared before, God supernaturally provided for us in, in many ways in those first years of our marriage. Now, I don't, I don't worry typically where my next meal is coming from or if we're going to be able to pay the mortgage or having all the extras of life. We're, we're doing pretty good. And I see, I feel it in my own heart that I don't depend upon God as much. This is a warning for me not to lose my sense of dependency and my sense of trust in God. It's a warning for all of us. When, when, and and that the, the curse, the woe there, is that when we be, become dependent upon the things of this life, when we become rich in things, then these things will become our delight. Do you love the things of your life more than you love God? That'd be a good question to meditate upon this. I mean, seriously, think about that. What do you love? And how we know we can look at what we love by what we spend our money on, what we spend our time on, right? Do we really love God? Are we depending upon him? Or are we delighted by the things? And Jesus says here that those who delight in the things of this life, well, you've received your consolation. There's nothing else. There's nothing else to comfort you. There's nothing else to bring you peace. And so Jesus calls us here to embrace the promise of the kingdom. We live in the kingdom now, yes, for sure, but the promise of the kingdom is that we will dwell in it forever. We need to continue to sense our dependency upon God to remain spiritually impoverished people. The second promise, and the rest go a little bit faster now because that's kind of the overarching one. Verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. So again, these beatitudes are interconnected. The poor, because of their lack, their lack, often suffer hunger. In fact, hunger is probably the most fundamental effect of poverty. But again, Jesus here is pointing to a spiritual hunger. Again, he says in Matthew 5, 6, the parallel, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So our spiritual poverty produces in us a spiritual hunger. Physical hunger tells us that we need nourishment, that we need food. Food is necessary for life. When we are hungry, we know to go searching for food. We need it. Our body needs it. Spiritual hunger reminds us that we have a need for God and for the things of God. And it propels us to find our sustenance only in him. But again, there's also a warning in verse 25. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And the warning there is that we will be satisfied in the things of this life. I thought about this week. It's like eating only dessert. Like if you sit down to a meal and you ate only dessert... If, if you sat down to a meal and somebody put before you a plate of two dozen chocolate chip cookies, I mean, it would seem like heaven, right? I mean, it'd be like awesome to eat a full plate of chocolate chip cookies. And when you're done with that, if you're not feeling sick, you certainly feel full. You'll feel great. 
But it's a false fullness, isn't it? Because you haven't eaten anything of nutritive value. There's nothing in it that will sustain you, that, that gives you what your body needs. It gives you all the bad stuff and none of the good stuff. And so we might feel full, but it's a false feeling of satiety. When we satisfy ourselves with the things of this life, we might feel content, but it's not a true contentment. It's a phony fullness. So our comfort will be in the temporary satisfaction that we receive from the world. Jesus says that if you are full now, you got it. But you'll be hungry later. It will be an eternal hunger that can never be satisfied. So Jesus calls for us to hunger for him, to hunger for the things of the kingdom, to hunger for true righteousness because he will truly satisfy that hunger. The third promise in verse 21, blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. Again, weeping is, a, is an outward sign of, of, of sadness and, and mourning, right? We feel it inwardly. We feel sad. We mourn. We grieve. And the way that we express that inner emotion is through weeping and through crying. And again, too, that is a result of spiritual poverty. Again, the materially poor grieve because suffering material things produces that sadness and that mourning. And just as the materially poor weep and mourn, so also the spiritually poor weep and mourn. The power of sin has brought incredible suffering and destruction to our lives. We are broken and hurting because of our sin, but the promise for disciples of Jesus is that our weeping and our mourning we turn to joy. And again, that joy is signified there by laughing. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. In other words, you shall be full of inward joy. The laughter is an expression. It's an outward expression of an inward joy. When we believe Jesus, when we come to Jesus and believe the gospel, he transforms our grief and our sorrows. And he gives to us joy beyond comprehension. He becomes our all in all. And he fills us with an overabundance of his riches. Again, we find our true happiness in him. When we are satisfied with Jesus, there is joy, and that is expressed in the laughing, the outwardness, the overflow of the joy that Christ gives to us. But again, there's a warning in verse 25. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Again, those who are happy because of their circumstances, those who find joy in the things of this life, those who are comforted by their worldly goods or their life situations will one day weep and mourn. Why? Because this world is passing away. The goods of this life, the easy life circumstances that we may enjoy will eventually end. There'll be no more. And if we found our joy in these things, when they are taken from us, when they come to an end, then we will mourn and weep with sorrow that cannot be consoled. So beware that we find too much joy in this world. The promise for disciples is that we will know joy. We will know it fully and completely and eternally in the kingdom of God. That brings us to the fourth and final promise in verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Again, the poor live out on the margins. They're overlooked, they're despised, they're harassed, they're rejected. And the spiritually poor are no different. Those who profess their need for God will suffer. Those who profess the gospel, believe in the gospel, will 
suffer. I was reading this morning a little booklet that I had from a, an admission agency about the persecuted church. And there are those, we, we don't face it much in this country, but other parts around the world, to profess the gospel, to say that they believe in Jesus is a death sentence. We will be hated and excluded and reviled. We will be insulted. We will be spurned. And that's what, ordin- that's what ordinarily happens when we align ourselves with Jesus. But we willingly suffer such rejection because the blessing and glory of God pales in comparison far beyond the reward that this world offers to us. In fact, that's what Jesus promises his disciples in verse 23. He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Your reward is great in heaven. So the promise for disciples is that we have great reward in heaven. We have a treasure that far surpasses the treasures of this life. And so we are called willingly to suffer rejection. But we can rejoice because of that rejection for the promise of a reward that cannot be trumped or taken away. I love that expression, leap for joy. It's used one other place in the Gospel of Luke. Remember when Mary, Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus, appears before Elizabeth? She's pregnant with John the Baptist. When Mary appears before Elizabeth, it says that John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth leaped for joy. He was so overwhelmed, so excited to be in the presence of the Messiah to know that God was fulfilling his messianic purpose. And so we also have such joy, leaping and abounding because of the great reward that is ours in heaven for those who follow after Christ. But again, there's a warning in verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. There's a temptation to have a reputation in this world, is there not? There's a strong temptation to be liked by others. There's a strong temptation for others to say good things about us, to put us on a pedestal, to struggle I think many of us fight with. Not only do we skirt rejection, but we also benefit from receiving the glory of men. But Jesus says that to receive the accolades of men is to put ourselves in bad company, right? It's like the false prophets. The Israelites spoke well of the false prophets. Why? Because the false prophets told them what they wanted to hear. We'll clap and we'll acclaim the false prophets because we like what they're saying to us. And yet, what did it bring? It brought destruction. Total destruction. In the case of the destruction of Jerusalem, it brought cataclysmic destruction. You go read Jeremiah, how Jeremiah boldly proclaimed the truth and how he was persecuted for 45 years and then read about the false prophets who they just loved. That's not to be in good company. So aligning yourself with earthly men only solidifies your opposition to God. So we should align ourselves with Jesus no matter the outcome. We ought to expect rejection. The world rejected Christ, they will reject us. But the pain of rejection is assuaged by the promise of an eternal reward and the prospect of that reward. The great inheritance of Christ and all that belongs to him is enough to make us leap for joy. What precious, precious promises we have in Christ. If you're a Christian, I pray that these promises would encourage you and would bolster your faith. The path of discipleship is a marathon. Yes, we will stumble and trip along the way, but it is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It requires diligence. It requires faithfulness. I believe it was Eugene Peterson who said that Jesus calls us to a long obedience in the same direction. We need to keep our hands to the plow. We need to keep pressing forward. If we will be faithful disciples... We will recognize our utter dependency upon Christ. 
but we will also understand that we receive everything that we need for life and godliness from him. In Christ, we are truly blessed. Reminded me of that song we sang earlier, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Praise be to God for all of his blessings to us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this teaching on discipleship. We thank you, Lord, that you care about all of our lives, um, that you're not like an Armenian evangelist who simply tries to get us to make a profession of faith and let that be it. But, Lord, that you care to bring us into the kingdom and to keep us walking with you all the way through this life until our last moment on earth, knowing that even death cannot separate us from your love. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to be faithful disciples, help us to realize our spiritual condition, the reality of our own heart, how desperately we need you. We've sung that this morning as well, Lord. We are desperately needing you. So we pray that you give to us your Holy Spirit to help us apply these words to our hearts to walk in faithfulness with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We come to the Lord's table this morning, just a, a reminder in case we have some people that haven't been here yet. Uh, we're doing communion a little bit differently. Uh, rather than having the men serve us as we normally do, we're just asking you to come. We'll dismiss row by row, family by family to come and to take of the elements. You can grab your own bread. It's in a little communion cup. Uh, you can grab your grape juice or wine. There's a bas- waste basket here to dispose of those cups. And uh, you come and take. We just ask you to come and take what's in front, not what's re- behind do this as safely and as socially distant as possible. Um, as I was thinking through how to transition us to the table, I just thought this morning of Ephesians chapter 1, kind of like First Peter that John read for us earlier. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things together in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, because of this sacrifice, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The blessing that Paul speaks of here has come through Christ and through Christ alone, through his broken body and through his shed blood. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he celebrated the last supper with his disciples He took the bread that was before them. them. He broke it. 
gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. And then he took the cup of wine. And he said, This is the cup of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, to establish a new covenant by which we enter into this new relationship with God and by which we have this blessing now because of Christ. So as we come this morning to eat and to drink, we take these elements and we proclaim the blessing that is ours in Christ. And then we carry that blessing to the world so that all the nations might be blessed through the blessing of Abraham. Let us come to this table.